Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Comprehensive list. It's not all of the sin in the world, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, man, that's a lot of sin. And, and here's the deal. This is what the others are doing. But, but he tells us, you were the others. Such were some of you. I'm grateful that I'm not guilty of all of those sins. I'm grateful that you're not guilty of all of those sins. But all of us are guilty of some of those sins. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Anointed One. We are in Luke chapter four, and we're gonna take up today in verse 18. As Jesus teaches out of Isaiah 61, we see him fulfilling that prophecy live and in person. So let's listen in. That he was talking about crushing Rome and establishing the kingdom of God. And that's why they get all excited. Oh, he's gonna do the Romans in. And then of course he didn't do what they expected. He came to do what he was sent to do, but he wasn't operating in the way they thought he would. We'll see why in a moment. It's actually, well, a part of this text, but not in our text. And so what happens is they're thinking he's going to crush the Roman rule, but when he isn't really doing that, instead he's going around doing good and healing and ministering and teaching and preaching. Even John the Baptist, who first identifies him, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John will say, Hey, after he's been arrested and imprisoned, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? I'm confused by what's happening, John's kind of saying. Well, here's the deal to set at liberty those who are oppressed. There is a freedom that happens within that nothing that happens without can ever challenge or change. Then he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is an exciting revelation in and of itself. You see this whole passage, Isaiah 61, is tied to, well, the celebration of Israel that's called Jubilee. You would love it. I wish we still did it. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, all slaves were set free, and all the land reverted to its original owners, the owners God gave it to. So you could find yourself, well, many of us have found ourselves in a situation similar to this. Um, in those days, if you became impoverished, you couldn't provide for your family, you could sell yourself into slavery by, to your neighbor or someone else. Today we call that getting a job. And so, uh, but, but basically that, that's what happened. You become a servant of this other person. And then if things were really bad, you'd actually sell them your land. But God had put it in his law that it couldn't go on and on and on like that. That when the year of Jubilee came, the debts were canceled, the slaves were set free, the land was returned. And so they know this context. They understand that that's what Isaiah was talking about. And you got to know that there was some excitement in the room. They're like, hey, if this is true, we're in for an exciting ride in the next weeks and months and years to come. He says, I'm going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, at this point, and here's what's happening, he's standing out of respect for the word of God as he reads it. At this point, he's going to roll up the scroll. He's going to hand it back to the guy who had given it to him. And then he's going to sit because that's what they would do in order to teach or, or, or to explain or exhort. And as he sits, well, all eyes are going to be fixed on him. But before we look at what he has to say, let me share what he didn't share. You see, Jesus stops mid-sentence. 
He stops at a comma, though there was no punctuation in the original. He would have certainly been reading it with some punctuation. He knew that each of these were major ministries in and of themselves, major issues in and of themselves. And so he stops and doesn't read something they would have all been expecting. You see, they were familiar with these prophets. They were read to them as we shared every single week in the synagogue services. And so the seventh thing that he would have shared and didn't share is this, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you studied through Revelation, and well, many of you have because we just finished it, you know that, that we've seen the day of God's vengeance, the day of his wrath is still ahead, but rapidly approaching. In fact, in our Wednesday night study, as we go book by book, looking at an entire book each week, we're going to see in the prophetic books, we're going to focus on the reality of end times events and we're going to focus on the reality of Jesus and those end times events, his place and part, because we're looking at Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. But all of that to say this, had he read this last half of the verse, the day of vengeance of our God, we would have never been here because that would have brought about that last seven year period that day of uh, judgment, Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation and great tribulation period. And, and so in any case, Jesus rolls up the scroll. He doesn't read that because these first six things he came to do his first coming. The seventh he will accomplish at his second coming. So we read it or should have verse 20. He closed the book or in reality rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, the eyes of all in the synagogue fixed on him, and he began to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Remember, Isaiah wrote with an immediate local context, but, but Isaiah had an application for then and an application for the future. It, it was a, a local and immediate fulfillment and then a literal future fulfillment and Jesus is saying, hey, these things that Isaiah spoke of, they were written of me. And I'm here to tell you, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to accomplish these very things. And these are what I've come to do. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, in verse 22, we see their response. They all bore witness to him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Gracious words. They mean grace-filled words. And gracious words, grace-filled words, they come from a heart of grace. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what they're doing is they're listening to Jesus as he reads and they're sensing that he's not just reading a text. He's not just reading the scripture. He is proclaiming these realities as if they were actually transpiring in their midst. That's exactly what he intended to do. And, and they sense it. But here's something else. His grace is contrasted with their self-righteousness, their judgmentalness, their bigotry and prejudice. And he knows that. And so this is one of those places, again, their initial response seems so positive. If he had just said, well, that will be it for today, then everything would have been fine. But Jesus isn't about to leave them without dealing with them. He's not just there to say, hey, I'm going to heal and I'm going to bless and I'm going to do this. No, he's the great physician and he sees a real need and he puts his finger on it. 
he gives a prescription and, and he wants to bring them around. Now their question, is he not just Joseph's son? Of course not. That's what they assumed. That was the best case scenario in their eyes because the story of the virgin birth, it didn't really fly in his hometown. And, and you have to know that. Well, he says to them in verse 23, and this really changes the mood. He says, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't appear that anybody said anything that should lead him to say these kinds of things. But Jesus was doing then what he's doing now. He is able to do what none of us can do, and that's actually get in the heads and hearts of other people. He can read our thoughts. Are you aware of that? If you're new to a study of the Bible, don't let it freak you out. I got to tell you, first time I realized he could read my thoughts, I thought, oh my gosh, then there's no way to escape who I am and what I am. And, and, and here's the good news, though he can read our thoughts, though he knows our motivations, though he knows the worst of us, he still loves us. He still chose us. He still died for us. And we should find great security and hope in the fact that someone who knows everything about us, those things no one else will ever know because of the shame we feel for them, for even thinking them or imagining them. He knows it all, but he still loves us. Man, you're not going to find that among one another. I guarantee you, if you began to tell everyone around you everything about you, well, the circle would get bigger only because they'd be further and further from you. And the Lord's the only one who, when you spill your heart and you say, Lord, I'm, I'm just so wretched and I'm so wicked. And, and he's like, I know it. I've always known it. Now you're seeing it. And I came to deal with it. And he's putting his finger here on, on an issue that was going to keep them from receiving from him, from really experiencing all he'd planned and purpose. And again and again, as we go through this gospel and the others, we'll read things like Jesus knowing their thoughts, Jesus knowing what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're, what they're going through, whether it was good or bad. We'll get to in just a, 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 the next chapter, it's a couple of weeks out at least we'll get to see a, a guy let down through the roof and, and Jesus looks at him and and he, he speaks to the man's greatest need he says son your sins are forgiven you and people in the crowd there in that home they begin to think wait a minute who is this only God can forgive sin not realizing how close they were to the truth yeah only God can forgive sin that means only one of two things this is blasphemy or he's God and, well, sadly, they weren't really ready to receive him, most of them, as God. But, but he says to them, which is harder, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or rise and take up your bed and walk? Well, hey, this is a no-brainer. Anybody can say, your sins are forgiven. There's no way to tell if anything happened, at least not outwardly. But if I say to someone, hey, rise, take up your bed and walk, or you do, well, it's going to be obvious in a moment if there's any power behind that command. But of course, he says that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's his primary thing. We'll see it again and again and again. Why? It's sin that keeps us from God. It's not all the things in the world or all the things that we, well, you know it. You understand it. So, so he says, rise, take your bed and walk. Of course, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The guy hears, he stands, and everyone was amazed at what he was doing. Well, 
Here we see it. Jesus has shared with them. They're marveling at his gracious words. And he says, let me tell you something. There's something else going on here and it's under the surface, but I'm going to bring it to the surface. And what he does is knowing how they'd respond, he lights the fuse that will lead to their exploding in anger. And uh, again, why? Because no one will ask forgiveness for a sin. They're not aware they're committing or guilty of. He says, I tell you truly, verse 25, giving the first of the two illustrations and examples. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, there was a great famine throughout the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, we don't have time for the whole story, and I doubt that he intends it, but they were aware of it and familiar with it. So let me just say, God had prearranged a signal with them, as it were. He said, if you begin to go after idols and get into immorality and you begin to drift away from me, I'll tell you how you can know, in case you're not aware, I'll just stop up the heavens and there'll be no rain. And then that lack of rain will lead to famine. And you'll look around and say, hmm, no rain, no famine. What are we doing? What's gone wrong? And then you'll search your hearts. And when you come back to me, as you confess your sin, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and confess their sin, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive and restore their land. That was his deal. That was his promise. So they're in a time of drought. Ahab, by the way, blames it on Elijah, which is so funny. Like, what did Elijah do to cause the drought? No, he did pray there'd be no rain, but that was by the hand of God. That was the desire of God. And, and the real problem was Ahab and the people were in rebellion to God. So it's during that season and Jesus draws their attention to it, a season of rebellion, a season where their hearts were far from God, though they were going through the motions. And then he says he was sent just to this one widow. And it's an interesting story in and of himself. He, he comes he sees the widow. He begins a conversation with her and, and he says, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm just cooking up the last meal here for my son and I. And then we're just going to die because, you know, she they, she was at the end of her provision. There was no rain. There was no crop. And, and so listen, he says, and I love this. This is in First Kings 17, by the way. Don't fear. Go as you have said, but make me a small cake first and bring it to me. Afterward, make some for yourself and your son. And I got to think, OK, wait, I didn't I just explain to you, I just have enough for the two of us. And you're saying, feed me first. But here's what he goes on to say. And this changes everything for her. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. He's saying, Here's God's promise to you. You take care of me and he'll take care of you. And I love this because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. She obeys and the outcome is, well, exactly what you'd expect. A miraculous provision every single day until the rain falls and the drought and the famine ends. Well, there's also a resurrection in the story. If you take time later to read through it, her son dies and Elijah raises him from the dead. And it's sort of a precursor because remember, Jesus is talking about a time of, of rebellion. He's a talking about a time where they were unfaithful and unbelieving. But he's saying, God sent Elijah to just this one woman. Then he gives a second illustration in verse 27. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of 
of Elijah, the prophet. He's the one that follows in the footsteps of Elijah. None of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. As he gives this illustration, the story again, we don't have time for the whole thing, but a couple things are so important to us and our purposes. Naaman, well, he is a commander in the Syrian army and they had actually been harassing the Jews and, and God had also said not only famine, but he'd used their enemies against them. It was another signal to them that he was displeased with them. So Naaman had actually taken a young gal captive and, and uh, she was saying one day, wow, it's just too bad he couldn't go to Israel and talk to them down there because they can heal things like leprosy. Now, leprosy, and most of you were aware, a most dreaded disease, it, it disfigured you. It was a death sentence. It isolated you because people were all afraid of the disease and of you. And so here's this guy. And uh, he hears word, there's hope in Israel. First, he writes to the king and the king freaks out. He's like, oh, he's just trying to pick a fight. I mean, how, what am I, God? Like I could heal leprosy. And Elijah gets words and says, oh, I just send him to talk to me. And the king's like, all right, you got it. And he comes to Elijah. But Elijah, unlike his mentor, Elijah, well, he doesn't even come out of the house. This just really ticks off this guy. I mean, he feels disrespected. He feels humiliated. He's brought all sorts of valuable gifts. I mean, he's about to make this guy rich and receive what he hopes will be a healing of an incurable disease. And when Elijah just says, nah, you know, you, you just go out there and tell him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be fine. He goes berserk and he just says, that's not going to happen. I mean, we have much better rivers up home in Syria. I'm not going in that dirty Jordan. And, and then he has this servant, Naaman that is. It's so important because we get to play this part. And as often as we're willing, we're going to hear somebody saying something oh so stupid. Like, well, I think all religions lead to God. And you're going to know that's not wise. That's not true. And if you're a wise and faithful servant and you see yourself as God sees you, someone to minister to those people, you're going to say, hey, can I share something with you? The Bible says there's a straight and narrow path that leads to God and few find it. It comes by the way of the cross. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but by me. The point is this servant says, listen, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking clear. If he gave you something difficult to do, you would have done it in a minute. But but he says, go wash in the Jordan and you're not going to give it a shot. And so, well, Naaman thinks again, comes to his senses. He goes and washes in the Jordan. He comes out completely cleansed. Those two stories, by the way, they take us back to two prophets. Remember, Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Both of these prophets suffered at the hands of their own people. In fact, most of the prophets suffered at the hands of their own people. And so he says, hey, one widow, one leper. And note their response to all this. All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. First time I read this, I was flabbergasted. Don't you love that word? It's just a good word. You should see it written. It's even better. But I was just, I couldn't believe it. What did he say? I didn't get it. Maybe you don't get it. What did he say to so upset him? What, they don't like Elijah or they don't like Elijah? No, I'll tell you who they don't like. They don't like Gentiles. And both of these people are Gentiles. See, they're the others if you're into, into lost. And, uh, and of course, they, these guys were lost. And um, they were those people. 
And so here's what's taking place. As he shares these two illustrations, you can just see their faces tightening up and and their shoulders tensing. And it says they rose up and thrust them out of the city. They led them to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw them over the cliff. Seems like a bit of an overreaction for not liking part of the sermon. But again, I'm someone who stands before a crowd. So passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Hey, that's important. His hour had not yet come. He wasn't going to die in this manner and he wasn't going to die at this time. He could just walk through because, well, he still had work to do. When the time came, nothing would keep him from the cross. He went there willingly. He went there joyfully for you and for me. Well, here's the deal. These guys are, are exposed. Their prejudice, their bigotry, their hatred for Gentiles, for Samaritans, for anyone unlike them. And remember, they're the chosen people. But from the very beginning in Genesis 12, God made it clear that he had chosen Abraham to bring forth a nation through whom he'd bring forth a savior so he could bring forth his church. And he made it clear from the beginning that Abraham was going to be a blessing to all nations. And how they missed that, how they got off is, well, it's something we need to be aware of. And we want to make sure we don't follow in their footsteps. They begin to look at themselves and think they were worthy of the gracious mercy and gifts God had given them, that they deserve forgiveness, that they deserve God's blessings. And nothing could be further from the truth. The whole idea of grace is it's not deserved. It's a gift. And his gift is extended to the entire world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as he exposes their hatred, as he exposes their prejudice, as he exposes their bigotry, the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, who are those people to us? You see, to the Jews, any Gentile was uncircumcised, was unclean, was unwashed, was unacceptable. They wanted nothing to do with those people. And I'd suggest that it's possible. I'm not accusing you of it, but I'm saying it's possible. There are some of those people in your life. Some of those people might be in your own household, your own family. People that that you just would be just as happy as God just let them go and shine them on and they got what they deserved. You know, mercy for me, justice for them kind of thing. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and I'm going to have Phyllis come up and share. She's one of our missionaries, and she's serving in Israel currently, but she's here. She's going to share for just five minutes with us. Let me read you this, and then we'll uh, apply it and conclude. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I read that, and I think, well, that's good, because we don't want those unrighteous people in the kingdom anyway. And then he says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a pretty comprehensive list. It's not all of the sin in the world, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, man, that's a lot of sin. And and here's the deal. This is what the others are doing. But, But he tells us, you were the others. Such were some of you. I'm grateful that I'm not guilty of all of those sins. I'm grateful that you're not guilty of all of those sins. But all of us are guilty of some of those sins. And if not those, others. But here's what he says. Such were some of you. See, you were outside. You were unclean. You were unwashed. You were unforgiven. You were without hope and without Christ in the world. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, that's his heart and desire for every single person. And if there are others in our lives, if there are those people in our lives, well, we want to confess today, Lord, rather than taking him to the brow of the hill and trying to kill him, well, they should have been saying, kill me, Lord, put me to death. Not, not physically, but, but the, this inner man, the one that hates and the one that judges and the one that's self-righteous and, and the one that would want to see others perish that Christ loves. Lord, put that guy to death so you can live in me, so you can transform me, so you can use me. Such were some of you. Such a wonderful reminder. God's mercy and Jesus' sacrificial love did not become mine when I became saved. They were mine before I was saved, when I was lost and living in rebellion to God, so that I could be saved. So we contemplate the meaning of Romans 5.8 where it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.